So let me just take a minute and um, kind of let you in on a secret. Not really. It's not a secret. But um, the structure of the service, there's actually a method to the madness. There's like a, an arc pretty much most Sundays. And it's particularly obvious this morning, and I just wanted to point it out to you. Um, so we've talked in the past with the worship team, and we've even shared this, you know, in years past with you all, um, but it's been a long time, and uh, we think about the arc of the service in line with the arc of the gospel, which is there's this great God who's created everything, and he's worthy of all of our worship and praise, but we've got great need because we're sinners, we're prone to wander, and we've all gone astray. So we've got great need. We need to acknowledge that, recognize that. But it doesn't stop there. There's great grace. Great provision has been made through Christ. And so we need to be reminded of that grace that is there for us over and over and over again. And then we don't just stop there, but there's a response that's appropriate and fitting. So the love of God, oh, God is so loving. He's so great. He created out of love, and he is just an overflowing fountain of love. If you, you know, if all the oceans were filled with ink and every stalk was a quill, you know, there's just not enough room in the sky, not enough ink in the oceans um, to write of the love of God. It's a good thing, right? Because we're all poor and needy, sinners, sick and sore. And we need help. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need, we need Jesus. And we have a Savior, wonderful Savior. And so, oh, the wonderful cross. We can, isn't that crazy that we're boasting in the cross? Why in the world? It's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. No, this is Jesus taking our sin for us on the cross so that we can be reconciled with God. Our greatest problem is is dealt with fully. It is finished. And so if we're in Christ, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All your sins are paid for, past, present, future. You're reconciled to God forever. His love is wider, longer, higher, and deeper than we can even fathom. And so this love demands our life, our all. And the last song we're going to sing this morning is Take My Life and let it be consecrated to thee. So, you see that arc? Isn't that what we need to cycle through every day? Isn't it easy to get, like, out of sync? Where we get stuck, like Chris was talking, and, oh, like, I screwed up again. God's probably just sick of me, sick and tired of me. So I should probably go do some penance and, you know, beat myself up so that hopefully he'll kind of let... No, you can run right back into the arms of your loving Father um, and find forgiveness and cleansing and renewal and grace. So hopefully we're doing this arc every day, every week certainly. It's kind of like getting back in sync, but also training us consciously and unconsciously so that we can find that path in the dark. So does that all make sense? Um, look for it week by week, because that pattern is there. All right. So <clears throat> back around 2006, I didn't totally fact check this. This was one person's memory, but I think it's reliable. Um, many of you, or some of you were here, many of you were not, okay? And our history is no um, secret. We, we can be honest about the past. Um, so Bethel went through some really hard times. So it was back around 2006, there was a meeting um, set to have a vote on issues of membership, and several members were going to be disciplined because there was a letter-writing campaign that was aimed at undermining leadership for changes to theology and polity, which is like church governance, kind of how you operate. So at that time, there were probably around 400 people on the membership rolls and about 150 people attending. And the letter-writing group invited many of those members, like, that really weren't here, long since left the church, to the meeting. Someone even asked the news journal to show up, and they sent a reporter 
to come and observe the meeting, and he showed up and ended up writing an article. There was a lot of drama in this meeting. So first, the issue of membership, who is a member here, and then who could vote on the discipline of these, um, this letter-writing group. So, you know, parliamentary procedures were being followed or attempted to be followed, and there was lots of disruption and emotion and passion and discord, and most of the discord was from people who'd already left. And as you can imagine, these dynamics, like just think about that, even if you weren't here, how much oxygen is something like this going to suck up in, in a season of the, the church's life? So you can imagine how hard it would be to focus on anything else. It's going to be hard to really build up the body and look out to reach the city and neighbors. So the reason I bring that up is to say internal threats to the church are real, right? They're real in our church's history. And they're dangerous. And we need to handle them well whenever they arise so that we can always be reforming and rebuilding the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against us. So we have our Savior's promise that he's with us and for us. And so even when we have threats and obstacles, whether they come from outside or arise from inside, he's with us and can walk us through those things. So as we walk through this book of Nehemiah, we've already seen a number of threats coming at the people of God from the outside. So the people of God had been in exile in Babylon, and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and, and Cyrus decreed that the Jews could go home. They could rebuild the city. And so in 536, Zerubbabel leads a wave of people back, and they rebuilt the altar and the temple. But much work remained to be done. About 50 years later, Ezra led another wave of returnees, and he was focused on the Word of God and reforming and rebuilding the people of God around the Word of God. Then about 20 years later, Nehemiah hears this report. He's the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, most powerful man kind of in the world at the time. And here's this report that still Jerusalem is in terrible disrepair and in ruins, and he is crushed, and he spends four months fasting and praying, and he makes a plan, and he takes the risk to ask Artaxerxes to send him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and build up the people of God. So there was a lot of external threats. He arrives on the scene, and the surrounding, you know, little leaders, governors type guys, you know, are trying to stop this work because this is their territory. They want to be in charge here, and they don't like the idea of Jerusalem being rebuilt. So we've seen in previous weeks the external threats, and now in chapter 5, we have an internal threat. So let's look and see how Nehemiah addressed this and learn from it. So turn, if you're not there already, to Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you are using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 401. We're going to go through Nehemiah chapter 5. So let me just pray here briefly. Um, I think this is an ancient Scottish prayer or something, but I, I love it, and it summarizes what we need so well. So, Father, We need you. We need you this morning. We need you right now. What we know not, would you please teach us? And what we have not, would you please give us? And what we are not, would you please make us? For the glory of your name, that your name might be hallowed in and through our lives and in and through our church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Nehemiah 5, three points. Um, first point, internal threats, the first five verses. So look there at Nehemiah 5, 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So you see this phrase, a great outcry arose. If you were reading the Bible just kind of 
from cover to cover, starting in Genesis, hitting Exodus, this phrase would ring a bell. There was a great outcry that God responded to in the past in biblical history. In Exodus 2, during those many days, this is 2.23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out, same word, for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And he provided Moses as a mediator and deliverer to lead them out of Egypt. So we're not surprised that the Egyptians would oppress and afflict the Israelites, you know, bricks without straw and all of that, this harsh taskmasters, masters, heavy hand. Um, but now some of the Jews are crying out against the heavy hand of their own kinsmen. So this is internal threat. This should not characterize the people of God, you know, among themselves. So verses 2 to 5 explain what was happening. It seems like there's multiple groups here speaking up, and you can see if you look at verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, right at the beginning, it says, For there were those who said, verse 3, there were also those who said, this other thing, and then verse 4, and there were those who said. So different groups, different issues, each speaking up like, hey, this is a problem. So verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So the larger the people group, the more grain they need. There's a lot of them. They needed a lot of grain. There's a lot of mouths to feed. So I think here's what's happening. First off, this is famine conditions. You see that in verse 3. We'll see that in a second. Second, we, we might just kind of miss this, but the work on the wall was urgent and all-consuming. They did an incredible amount of work in 52 days to complete this wall. But 52 days, when you need to be tending to your fields and your orchards and all of that, that's a big problem. So it was taking away, for many of the families, most of their agricultural workforce. So if you're working on the wall, you can't be working on the fields. Especially, like we looked at last week, if they're having to stay in the city for the protection of the city and the work because of these external threats. You know, Nehemiah said, everybody's got to stay here. We've got to do shifts and all of this. So there's lots of mouths to feed, and they were crying out for help. So in order to manage in this under these circumstances, some of these poor farmers were mortgaging their property. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. <clears throat> so this is a temporary way of addressing the situation, almost like taking out a line of credit. But your property, I mean, so, so it's kind of like your property's collateral, right? But if you can't make up enough money in crops to pay that line of credit down, you risk default, right? Permanent loss is on the line here. And then for some, it got even worse. Look at verse 4. So it gets progressively worse as, as it goes down here. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. We're all Jews. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So there's a famine. Able-bodied workers are being drawn away from their crops to work on the wall. Some are having to mortgage their property. They're still under the imperial rule of Persia, so they still owe their taxes. Some had to borrow money to pay the tax. You know, they're borrowing from wealthier Jews. You know, better to owe your brother, right, than be in debt to a pagan king. But in those days, when you owed money and you couldn't pay, you could become a temporary debt slave. Okay, this is not permanent chattel slavery, but you could be like you're working for this person to work off your debt. And your children may also have to join you in that debt slavery and work, and that's what's going on here. This was actually allowed in the Mosaic Law. So look at Deuteronomy 15, 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. 
And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. So again, don't think chattel slavery here. Think paying off debts because there wasn't, you know, bankruptcy that you could um, claim or whatever else. So you would work off your debt. Um, But look at the heart of God here in caring for these poor brothers and sisters. Don't let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. So in other words, treat your brother as God has treated you. Don't forget that you were a slave, and God freed you and provided for you. So, as you can see, every seventh year, the debt was cleared, and that former slave would be set free and generously helped. So, the bottom line is that things should not have gotten this bad, where they would have to cry out with these complaints. Even if debt slavery was necessary for some, if their creditors were operating according to the Mosaic law, especially in the midst of these circumstances of famine, these poor Jews wouldn't have had to cry out. So, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if the, if the world, like, you know, the Egyptians or whatever, oppress, threaten um, harsh taskmasters. But when the people of God do this, they should know better. They should be better than to exploit their own. So these internal threats were of even greater concern than the external threats were, that were coming from Sanballat and Tobiah and, you know, their cronies. So, in this world... We will have trouble, right? Jesus told us that. We should expect it and prepare for it. But how often do troubles arise from within? Complaints, slights, gossip, slander, annoyances, differences of opinion on disputable matters, stuff that Paul addresses in Romans 14, 15. Offenses left unforgiven, seeds of bitterness, growing up, and the church has stuff going on inside, and it threatens to destroy rather than enabling the church to be built up and to be strong and healthy. So, it happened in the books of, book of Acts. Same pattern, interestingly. So, if you, if you know the book of Acts, chapter 4, there's the threat of persecution that comes from outside. Chapter 5, there's corruption within when Ananias and Sapphira lie about, you know, the price of the field. And then in chapter 6, there's also distraction from the mission, kind of a threat, distraction from the mission as complaints arise because certain widows weren't being provided for. Same thing happened in Philippi. So there were external threats Paul had suffered for his faith, and now the Philippians were suffering for their faith. In Philippians 1.27, which is kind of like a summary of the purpose of the book, Paul says, if you get one thing, this is what I want you to get. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Display the worth of the gospel of Christ with your lives, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. Hear the unity language here with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So you can see the, the persecution was an external threat, but if you read on to chapter 4 of Philippians, there were internal threats too, right? Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I entreat, I appeal to Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So even these two ladies who, you know, faithful workers, something had gotten between the two of them and they were divided. And that was a threat to the unity of the church. And so Paul addresses that. So do you see what I'm saying? External threats, internal threats. You know, Nehemiah, that whole situation historically is a long way from us. But the threats that come from the outside and the threats that rise from inside are contemporary. They happen in every generation. So, are you on guard here? 
Like, do you see that as part of your role as a member? If this is your church home, we've got to be on guard. If this is your church family, if you are a part of this body, then part of the job description for each and every one of us is to guard the unity from threats that can arise from in here or among us. So Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain it. The Spirit creates it by the gospel as the gospel changes our lives and makes us one family in Christ, brothers and sisters. But we should maintain it. We must maintain it. And we need to be eager to do so. So there's active intentionality there. A call to active intentionality. So big things can sometimes blow up our unity, but more often, isn't it precipitated by like pretty petty things repeatedly over time, and then you're just smiling at the person, but really, you just don't like those people, those brothers and sisters. And the, and the unity just erodes. So the screw tape letters, you know, probably a lot of you are familiar with this book by C.S. Lewis. He has, it's an imaginative account of how a senior demon gives advice to a junior demon on how best to tempt souls to destroy their faith. Okay? So one letter, it's, it's actually the second chapter, includes counsel about distracting a new Christian as he attempts, you know, to be a part of the church. So here's what he writes. My dear Wormwood, okay, so that's the name of the junior devil. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. You have to think this is backwards, right? So an ally to a demon is like, you tracking here? Everybody like awake and, okay, good. Caffeinated and all, okay. So one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient, he calls him, him his patient, all your patient sees is the half-finished sham erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him something. When he gets to his pew and looks round, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your, patience, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, you know, and on and on. Fixate on those things so that you get annoyed Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first weeks as a churchman. And then near the end, he says, he has, not been anything like long en- he has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he's run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he's showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. So you can see how really petty, kind of annoying things can erode the unity of the church or prevent it from being strengthened and built up. So, yeah, big things can do it, but oftentimes small, petty things. He didn't, she didn't say hi to me in the hall. I'm pretty serious about that one because I've heard that one a number of times, and sometimes that sticks for years. Like, seriously. Let's give people the benefit of the doubt. Have you ever like been thinking about something and just missed somebody? 
Does that mean you think they're terrible and, you know, you were judging them? No, like, we can do this petty stuff. We're all prone to it, one sort or another. And then once we get lenses on, you know, about somebody, then we read everything through that lens. So we just have to be careful, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, yeah, there's going to be external threats. World and the devil need to be on guard and continue the work. We also have to watch out for the internal threats, the flesh, and the ways that the world and the devil come in the back door. The glory of God is at stake. We bear the Lord's name. The integrity of the message we proclaim is at stake. Our witness before the coming generations, like what are our kids seeing? What are they hearing about the way that we talk about one another in our homes? And then certainly our witness before the watching world, our neighbors and friends and coworkers. So this book, I love this book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by Ray Wortland. Um, it's a great book. I'm going to read an extended quote here. So it's going to be up here. You can follow along. And I hope this is the desire of your heart as we seek to, we're always in need of ref- reformation, reforming, uh, revival, renewal, and rebuilding, um, building up God's church uh, for his glory by his grace. So this paints a, a beautiful picture of what that can and should look like. So Ortland writes this, the primary barrier to the ministry of the gospel through your church is not out in the world. The primary barrier is within your church itself. Every church, to some extent, clogs and hinders the gospel, even as we intend to advance the gospel. So each one of our churches should examine itself. It's a call for us to do that here this morning and ongoing. We belong to the one who is altogether lovely, which means there can be nothing tawdry, cheap, sneaky, or nasty about us that should not be corrected immediately by his gospel. How will people on earth see the true beauty of our head? We're his body. He's the head. If his body below is scarred with ugliness like everything else in this world, we have no right to disfigure his image upon us. Among the followers of Christ, beauty has authority. Jesus told us that the unbelieving world will identify us as Christians only as we reflect his loveliness. John 13, right? When he washed his disciples' feet, the command of Christ is that we love one another. They'll know you're my disciples because of your love one for another. The example of Christ is that we die for one another. The promise of Christ is that our love will show a skeptical world the difference he really makes. Love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing. If we fail to love one another in ways so striking that we actually start looking like Jesus, then the world has the right to judge that we know nothing of him. They might be wrong. We might indeed be Christians, but the world is right to dismiss unloving Christians as unchristian. Jesus himself gave them that right. They will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we're destroying the truth we proclaim. It's in our churches that the gospel is field-tested for real life. If people want to know what the gospel creates, are they being unfair to look to a church? I don't think so. Where else are you going to look? (laughs) If you want to see what the gospel does, that's exactly where people should look. So do you see why it's so important that we be after reformation and rebuilding? So that we are here for the coming generations and for our neighbors and city to see what the gospel does, what Jesus can do. How justifiably does the world look at divided churches and think, when you Christians figure out how to get along, we might talk, but until then, we're not interested. What's at stake among us Christians is nothing less than the testimony that the Father has sent the Son. It's not just our credibility at stake, but Jesus's as the one sent from God. The unity within our churches, as well as with all true Christians, born out of love, is not a little garnish on the side, if we happen to like that sort of thing. Our unity exalts Jesus in the eyes of the world as the true Son of God sent from the Father, all his claims convincing, all his purposes desirable, all his promises reliable. This was important enough to Jesus that he prayed for it. John 17 is exactly what he prayed for. Do we pray for this? Do we share Jesus' passion, or do we treat it as an option while giving ourselves to our own 
priorities. So good questions for us to reflect on, ask ourselves, be honest with ourselves, repent of our indifference and our sin, and seek God's grace to be what he has called us to be. So when Nehemiah saw this blatant disregard for the law of God, because, you know, Jewish brothers are oppressing other brothers and sisters, when he saw that, um, he saw the opportunism, the cold-heartedness, he got angry, and he got to work. So point number two, righteous anger and action, verses 6 to 13. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. It's not right. Deuteronomy 29, or 23, 19 says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Okay, this is not to say that you can't ever work at a bank or, you know, um, loans across the board. This was the way that you were treating one of your own in the nation of Israel at this time um, and not taking advantage of their plight. So ESV Study Bible says this, while property might be taken in pledge, Pending repayment of a loan, taking interest from a fellow Israelite who borrowed out of poverty and need was forbidden. So that summarizes it pretty well. So Nehemiah is angry about this, righteous anger, and he acts. He puts some pressure on these wealthier Jews who were doing this. The end of verse 7. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you... Even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So, total exact situation isn't totally certain, but you can imagine that after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, and there's only poor farmers left in Jerusalem, and some of them couldn't make ends meet, and they had to sell themselves this debt slavery, you know, to neighboring peoples as debt slaves. When Zerubbabel and Ezra come back and they're rebuilding the people of God, you can imagine that some of this redemptive work was part of that effort, buying these people back from their slavery in surrounding areas to surrounding peoples. But then these people were redeemed from the nations only to be enslaved by their brothers. Like terrible irony. The holy nation had become like the nations. They were, in a sense, bringing Egypt into the promised land. (laughs) Do you follow that? Like bringing the slavery stuff into the promised land and becoming these harsh taskmasters so that the rebuilding effort was not just a matter of bricks and mortar and the wall. They needed reformation within. They needed to be purified to become the people God intended them to be. And that's always the case. That's what we need too. So thankfully these leaders responded. May we respond as well to whatever God convicts us of. Look at how they responded. They were silent When Nehemiah brought these charges, they couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? And then Nehemiah is honest. He said, you know what? I've participated in this too. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So apparently he was taking interest as well. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So his, the way he was operating isn't totally on par with the way that these other guys are operating. Theirs is much worse. But he wanted to at least say, you know what, I'm convicted too. And I'm going to stop doing what I've done, my participation in this, and I'm calling you to do the same. So put your money where your mouth is. And there's like this general amnesty that he's calling for, kind of like the year of Jubilee. So these are unique circumstances, not only famine, but the wall needs to be built, and it's calling people away from the work, from their, you know, agricultural work. These are their brothers and sisters, and by the grace of God, they responded. They said, we will restore these, verse 12. We will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And so Nehemiah said, okay, I want you to take an oath. He made them swear to do as they'd promised, 
And just like a prophet, he shook out the fold of his garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. So kind of a visual aid picture of what they're committing to, accepting the terms of this commitment and the curse if they fail to keep their word. And they all said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. So what should we take away from this? Certainly generous love for our brothers and sisters who are in need, materially in need, is one takeaway. Um, think of the early church, how people sold fields and in order to meet needs. It's quite the opposite of acquiring their brothers and sisters' property, like what was going on here. So we have a deacon fund here at Bethel for this very purpose. And over the years, we've been able to help numerous people, members, regular attenders, to address real material needs. So give to that fund as God enables you. And if you're in financial hardship, listen, please don't hesitate to make that need known. Bill, raise your hand. Bill is the deacon who oversees and administrates that fund. And, you know, you don't have to broadcast this to the world. We know it's hard to ever ask for help, but you can talk to Bill. And that's what that fund is for, whether it's food or utilities or rent or mortgage or car repair, health costs or, health, you know, um, medical bills or whatever. So that's what it's for. We're called to care for and provide for one another. It's a reflex of the gospel. 1 John three sixteen says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet his heart closes against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So let's not just say these things. Let's put our money where our mouth is. Believe, it, believe that it's God's provision, God's grace, and the joy of your brothers and sisters. If you are ever in need, or if you're in need right now, please don't suffer in silence. And you know what? Maybe down the line, you'll be able to provide in the same way for someone else's need, okay? And then finally, um, just note the contrast between what the enemies, like what makes the enemies angry and what makes Nehemiah angry. So if we zoom out a little bit and include last week, chapter 4. Those enemies are angry out of selfishness and pride and control and lust for power. Nehemiah is angry for completely different reasons. What makes him angry? He's angry about injustice and oppression and exploitation and lack of love. He's angry that the welfare of the people of God is being trampled, especially by their own people. So, what makes you angry? Think about your anger for this past week or this past month. I'm convicted by this. <laughs> how much of your anger is selfish in its roots? And how much is it related to the welfare of others? What is it that makes us angry is like an indicator light. <laughs> on the dash as far as what's really going on under the hood. So, reformation is needed if rebuilding is going to be effective. We need our desires and our orientation of soul to be love for God and for neighbor so that we're angry about what God gets angry about. I mean, we all get angry. But we need our anger to be purified and be righteous. Jesus got angry, right? But what made him angry? legalism, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy that, you know, put heavy burdens on people. He cleansed the temple, you know, upturning tables because it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, not a den of thieves protecting these people who had their commercial interests as primary. So may we see and repent, see our selfish anger and repent of that. I need to repent. I have had to repent. And may the Lord purify our hearts and give us righteous anger. And then last point, Christ-like sacrifice, verses 14 to 19. 
Verse 14, moreover, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, so 12 years, he's operating in this role as governor, Nehemiah is, for those 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. So he wasn't just barking commands. He was actually doing the work as well, working with them. And we acquired no land. So he's not taking advantage of the situation to, you know, have a plantation to retire on or something like that. We acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So apparently previous governors lived comfortably on the backs of the poor. Nehemiah, in contrast to the enemies around, certainly, but also in contrast to the previous governors before him, feeds the people rather than fleecing the people. So in this, isn't Nehemiah like an early foreshadowing of Christ? Christ-like leader. He's sacrificing for the welfare of others. He's impoverishing himself so as to not be a burden on God's people. He's impoverishing himself in order to enrich others. The world does the opposite, but love calls for this kind of sacrifice. So he, he sacrificed, he bore this burden in order to lighten the load on the people. He's laying his life down for the welfare of God's people. Sounds like Jesus, right? So in Jesus' day, the Pharisees did the opposite of what Nehemiah was doing. Look at Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Do as they say, not as they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with the finger, with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And Jesus was the exact opposite, wasn't he? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then he taught his disciples. So anyone that's going to follow after him should also live and lead like him. So Steve read it earlier, Mark 10, 42 to 45. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Different in the church, in the kingdom. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Just like Jesus came down to us, we work our way down the ladder, not up the ladder, stepping on people on the way up. What if that was our ambition, to work our way down the ladder in Christ-like humility? That might get the world's attention here and there. So it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Because even the Son of Man, the greatest one, the Lord of lords, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So spiritual leaders are called to bear burdens and work to relieve burdens, not impose them. That doesn't mean that we don't get to work or equip the body for the work, but it's not you do all the work while the leader sits back comfortably. So 
May everyone at Bethel who holds any kind of spiritual leadership position do likewise, like Nehemiah, but most importantly, like Jesus. So Jesus, the ultimate one who sacrificed for the welfare of others. I love 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, infinitely rich, it's all his. He owns it all. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, for our sake, he became poor. The incarnation, the shame, the humiliation, even at the point of death on a cross. Why? So that we, through his poverty, might become spiritually rich. The riches of his mercy and grace lavished on us because of what he did on the cross. So when we know how freely and how generously God has given to us in Christ, then we get filled up, right, to overflowing, and then we freely and generously give. We don't have to be on the take, you know, like using people, exploiting people, because God's taking care of us, so now we can overflow and take care of others. He did it for us, and he also did it to make us like him in the same way. So we see his sacrificial service for our sake. We believe it. It fills us up and strengthens us. All that mercy and grace poured into us. And then we become like him, pouring out that grace on others. Freely we have received, we freely give. So, Big picture, we see it in Nehemiah. It points us to Jesus. Then we look to Jesus and we see the ultimate, generous, burden-bearing, burden-lightening sacrifice. And when we know that grace, that generous grace, it changes us from the inside out. And then we are empowered to give grace and serve like our Savior has served us. So what is God's burden for his people? the title of this message. What's God's burden for his people? His burden is that we come to him to have him take away our burdens. (laughs) That's the first thing. Come to me, all your weary and heavy laden. He wants us to know his generous grace and over and over and over again. Keep casting your cares on him because he cares for you. It's a burden to him when we think he's stingy. No, he's generous. Come to him for more, more grace, more mercy, more help, more strength. He is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord, but he doesn't lord it over us. Under his thumb. God is for us. If you are in Christ, God is for us, not against us. And if, he is, if God willingly gave us his son, how will he not also together with him generously, graciously give us everything that we need? So when we see and experience the generosity, the burden-bearing help of our Savior, we will then become generous, burden-bearing people. And it will be that new loving community that puts the beauty of the gospel on display, builds up the church, and is used by God to be salt and light in this community, to draw in our lost neighbors with this countercultural community. All right, amen? So we're going to transition to communion now. And if you didn't get the cup and the wafer, no shame in running out right now to the tables that are back there, and you can grab one. So the Lord's Supper or communion is for all who are trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So God has given us two ordinances as significant means of grace. So baptism is the initial step of going public with your faith in Christ, and then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing and the soul-nourishing reminder of the work of Christ. So if you've been baptized and are trusting in Jesus, you are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper. If Jesus is not yet your personal Savior and Lord, or if you have yet to go public with your faith in Christ by baptism, we ask that you pass on partaking of the bread and cup. But encourage you not to let this moment pass. Okay, so maybe you need to come and talk to me or one of the other leaders about being baptized. And this goes to the kids and the teens. Like, if you're trusting in Christ and you want to say, hey, I'm with Jesus, 
then let's talk about it and be baptized. Follow Jesus and make it public. If you're not yet a Christian, don't just abstain. Observe. See, think about what this table means. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So the Last Supper that the disciple ate with Jesus, it was a Passover, Passover meal. Passover was this yearly reminder of the Exodus when God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. He set them free, led them out of house of slavery into the wilderness to worship him, and then he was with them all the way to the promised land. So it represented this protection from judgment and death by the atoning blood of the Lamb. So the last Passover supper became the first Lord's Supper, celebrating an even greater exodus. Jesus, the Lamb of God, went to the cross to redeem us, to buy us back, to set us free from the slavery of sin and death. He died that we might live. So he suffered the judgment that we deserve so that we might be pardoned and justified. And we have been brought out of the house of slavery and we are on our way to the promised land and he's with us all the way. So I love what J.I. Packer wrote and then I'm going to be quiet and we can prayerfully reflect um, and prepare our hearts to participate in communion here. So as you prepare to participate, listen to these words and then prayerfully prepare as um, Chelsea plays quietly. We are to learn the divinely intended discipline of drawing assurance from the sacrament. We should be saying in our hearts, as sure as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine, so sure it is that Jesus Christ is not a fancy, but a fact. That he is for real. And that he offers himself to be my savior, my bread of life, and my guide to glory. He has left me this rite, this token, this ritual action as a guarantee of this grace. He instituted it, and it is a sign of life-giving union with him, and I'm taking part in it, and thus I know that I am his and he is mine forever. That is the assurance that we should be drawing from our sharing in the Lord's Supper every time we come to the table.